is an ABC News special, COVID-19, What You Need to Know. Here is ABC News correspondent Aaron Katursky. It has become a reliable reality check. Each Thursday, the Labor Department tells us how many more Americans filed new claims for unemployment benefits, a snapshot of COVID-19's economic toll, and the numbers never fail to stun. Another 3 million people lost their jobs, bringing the total of the last eight weeks to more than 36 million. Brian Kench is dean of the College of Business at the University of New Haven. Dean, is there any end to this? Of course, there's an end in sight, but it, the duration of the downturn is uh, is unknown, how long it, uh, it continues. Whether you're looking at the unemployment rates that came out last week uh, or the claims that are still being uh, filed, um, I think it gets worse. Obviously, uh, you know, 14.7% unemployment uh, last month is quite high, but I think it gets even higher in the next cycle. What was going on with the jobless claims? Is it finally that industries and jobs that were unaffected by the initial shutdowns from the virus are starting to catch up? Yeah, I think they're probably... Uh, the way I like to think about it, two two buckets of executives. Uh, you know, one bucket was very aggressive, uh, could see uh, what was happening, and moved very quickly uh, to balance the budget, really trying to reduce costs in, in, in a significant way to make sure the budget was balanced. Others are in a different budget. Uh, perhaps they believed the quick V-shaped recovery. This is going to be a hit. We'll take it and we'll bounce back quickly. If you believe that line of thought, you might say, okay, let's, let's absorb. Uh, and as the story has frankly changed, right, that, that's fundamentally what's happening to say it's not a quick snapback. It's more of a long drawn out process. And for the businesses that didn't act immediately, they're acting now. And I think that's what you're observing now uh, across the country. Some businesses preferred the early approach. Some tried to wait it out. And there's just been no waiting out the virus. Yeah. So the fundamental question uh, issue there is uh, liquidity. Uh, You know, for some businesses, if it's short, yes, I'll take a loan. Even if it's at the low interest, I'll I'll deal with that. And I'll have to pay that loan back in some cases. In some cases, if, if you follow the rules of the CARES Act, uh, it, it can be forgiven, but that's all in a world where revenue is coming in. And if you, over the course of eight weeks, really fundamentally observe that the revenue streams have saw, uh, stopped, you find yourself insolvent. So it doesn't matter how many opportunities for a loan is out there, uh, are out there, you're insolvent. And, and I think many other businesses are facing that world right now. And so then you see, you know, just throwing in uh, the towel, uh, because they're insolvent. And, you know, 50% of, uh, you know, employment is through small business. Uh, they just don't have the capital reserves to sustain a much uh, longer. How long is it going to take to get these jobs back? So, you know, it took 12 years to get those jobs. Uh, and so that's one possible scenario that repeats itself. As soon as, if there is a virus, uh, if there's a vaccine, you know, the world fundamentally changes, right? And, and so things snap back a little quicker. But if you're going to live with, the, with what we have now for an extended period of time, the level of job uh, growth is muted. Brian Kench, the dean of the College of Business at the University of New Haven. The Centers for Disease Control are about to issue an alert to the nation's pediatricians about multi-symptom inflammatory syndrome, a condition that appears to be associated with COVID-19 and is affecting 100 children here in New York City alone. 
We're joined by Dr. Richard Besser, who leads the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, who used to lead the CDC, not to mention our medical unit here at ABC News. Doc, how concerned should we be about this? You know, I think, Aaron, what it what it points to is that we're still in early days of learning about this virus and and what it does and what it may do long term. You know, the 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 good news is that it, it looks like this condition in children, uh, the uh, multi-system inflammatory syndrome, it, it appears to be rare. Um, but it, we're learning we're learning much more about this, and there's so much more to to learn. Um, and it looks very similar to another condition in in children called Kawasaki's disease, um, but it's it, but it is slightly different. So. What, what I take away from it is we can't be complacent. We can't assume that just because someone isn't getting the typical lung findings, the pneumonia, uh, the severe respiratory issues that we see in one group, that there may not be something, some other reason to prevent infection. And it, it again points to me the importance of really being careful and slow and intentional as we're thinking about opening parts of the economy because that will lead to more spread of disease, and we don't fully understand the impact of this this virus. Being slow and being careful certainly seem to be at odds with how so many people are feeling right now. And when we heard uh, Dr. Fauci, uh, the director of the CDC, and others testify before Congress, they faced a lot of questions about whether any of this whole stay-at-home, social distancing, lockdown thing has actually done any good has it made a difference? Are we doing the right thing? Yeah, you know, I, I, I think that it has made a major difference, uh, an absolute uh, game changer. Uh, when you look at what was happening in New York City uh, a month ago and the pictures and images from hospitals of, of patients everywhere, uh, patients not being able to get the care that they need to to save their lives, and, and where we are now, where the healthcare system in New York City is able to take care of people, that's because of the social distancing, the lockdown, um, that led to a that flattening of the curve. The phrase that we heard time and time again: flattening of the curve doesn't mean a disease goes away. What it means is it slows it down to the level that the healthcare system is is able to take care of everyone who who needs care. One of the one of the biggest challenges I'm seeing is that public health is being made the enemy of people going back to work. And that's not that's not the way it should be. There should be guidance from the federal government about how to open each sector in a way that protects workers so that the economy really does does get restarted properly, that we have the public health system in place so that new cases are identified quickly and contained so that new cases don't become uh, local outbreaks that become widespread outbreaks that then once again overwhelm the healthcare system. You know, these are all things that aren't the enemy of the economy. These are what will allow for sustained opening of the economy. In a number of the communities that you've been championing through your work at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, there has been a traditional mistrust of maybe public health in particular. Are you finding that that's going to be a challenge to overcome and, and how do we do it? It is a challenge to overcome because I'm not seeing evidence um, that states and localities are valuing the lives of all of their residents equally. 
Um, we are we see black Americans, Latino Americans, Native Americans uh, being infected, being hospitalized and dying at at incredibly high rates. And there are things that can be done to address that. One of the things that that needs to be done, there's only three states that report their data, their testing data, their testing data by race and ethnicity. The reason that's important is that um, if you're not doing adequate testing in some racial groups, and they're the groups that are getting hit the hardest, you're, it's no surprise why, why we're seeing the kinds of, of numbers we are in, in, in certain communities. So breaking down data so you can get clarity in terms of what's going on is very important. Increasing testing and, and doing it in a way that meets the needs of each community. You know, if you're dealing with a community that has a lot of uh, people with, with variable immigrant status, uh, people who are undocumented, how do you ensure that there's trust that someone coming forward to be tested uh, won't be turned over to immigration um, or someone who's who uh, is here legally and wants to become a permanent resident, that their engagement with healthcare services won't be held against them uh, due to the new public charge regulations that say, wow, if you're taking government services, you can't become a citizen. Dr. Richard Besser at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. A month in the hospital with COVID-19 was just about enough for Tom Barisha. He left New York Presbyterian Allen Hospital here in Manhattan, dancing to the cheers of the staff. Barisha was admitted in early April, a time when doctors were trying different plans of care. It meant many different members of the hospital staff were involved, so they all came to see him off. One of the nurses wheeled him toward the lobby. There, his wife came to greet him, and he wanted to take part in the celebration. So he got up from the wheelchair and started to dance. His wife said, he's my husband of 23 years. It was one of the most beautiful moments of my life. We're hoping for more of those moments as we move together through this pandemic. I'm Aaron Katursky. Now over to Amy Robach. Thank you, Aaron. Joining me now is ABC News Chief Medical Correspondent Dr. Jen Ashton. And Dr. Jen, with so many different states in various stages of reopening, what are our individual risks with various activities? And right. you say that it has something to do with we, what you call the infectious dose. Right. How does that relate to COVID-19? This is so important, Amy, because it's helping us define the transmission dynamics of this virus. So that means how it spreads. So some mini med school here has to do with a really important concept that we know is key in how viruses spread, and it's called the infectious dose. The presence of a virus, because we've heard this before, it's found here, it's found there, that does not necessarily equate with a virus that can make us sick. So we know that's a fact. Just because you detect virus somewhere, it doesn't even qualify all the time as an infectious dose. Different viruses, it's like their fingerprint. They have different infectious doses. The lower an infectious dose is, in general, the more contagious that virus is. We can give as an example the norovirus, that GI bug, highly, highly contagious. Other viruses, not so much so. And so as we learn about this, it will help us stratify risk with various activities. All right. So then how does the infectious dose of a virus relate to how sick someone gets? This is where we get into the groundwork of theories when it comes to this strain of coronavirus, because there are kind of a theory that the infectious dose of SARS-CoV-2, this strain of coronavirus, is thought to be low. That's why this virus spreads so easily or is so highly transmissible. The other thing that we're thinking is that the higher an infectious dose 
the more viral load is transferred to a person. And that can be associated possibly with the severity of illness. That's why we're seeing healthcare workers, particularly in Europe, becoming so sick. And then the other theory is that masks can help prevent or slow the spread of this virus because it's literally blocking the transmission of some of that infectious dose from a sick person to someone else. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So what do we still need to learn about the infectious dose and COVID-19? A lot. Uh, (laughs) There is a lot we don't know, and we have to remember that. What is still unknown about this strain of SARS-CoV-2 or coronavirus is the minimum infectious dose needed to make someone sick. We also don't know yet at all whether the infectious dose correlates with viral load. And then connecting those dots, we don't know yet if the infectious dose leads to a high or low viral load and if that correlates with severity of illness. So that is probably the most important unknown. Still a lot of research that needs to be done for that. All right, Dr. Jen, we will check back in with you a little later in the show. Thank you. Let's go to ABC's Rachel Scott, who's in Washington, D.C., for the latest headlines. Hey, Amy, here's what we are working on right now. The governor of Wisconsin is accusing the state Supreme Court of throwing the state into chaos after striking down his COVID-19 stay-at-home orders. The 4-3 to ruling allows bars and restaurants to reopen. The court said Governor Tony Evers' stay-at-home extension had overstepped his authority. Federal agents are said to have seized a cell phone belonging to the chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee. A law enforcement official saying Senator Richard Burr's phone was taken as part of an investigation into a controversial stock trade allegedly made when the coronavirus first struck. FBI agents serving that warrant on the prominent Republican senator from North Carolina at his home here in the D.C. area. Burr has previously denied any wrongdoing and has not commented on these latest developments. And new details are emerging on plans to reopen the University of Arizona this fall. University President Robert Robbins telling ABC's Tom Yamas the back-to-campus plan hinges on testing, tracing, and treating the school creating their own system to produce and process diagnostic and antibody tests for the 60,000-plus people on campus. Officials say the big question is whether they can control students off-campus. And CVS announced it's it's opening 1,000 new self-swab test sites by the end of this month with the goal of processing up to 1.5 million tests per month pending supply availability and lab capacity. CVS currently operates large-scale rapid test sites in coordination with five states. And, Amy, the University of Arizona giving us exclusive access to its research labs. We know other universities and colleges will be watching this one very closely. They certainly will. Rachel, thank you very much. Well, as states begin to reopen and decide how best to ease into a new normal, leaders are left to decipher how to balance safety with the need to jumpstart the economy. Here to give us the latest on how things are progressing in California is Lieutenant Governor Alani Kunalakis. Thank you so much for being with us, Lieutenant Governor. We know that Governor Newsom earlier this week announced he was modifying some aspects of the stay-at-home order, allowing dine-in service at restaurants and schools to reopen. But we still know that counties have to meet strict guidelines. Like what? Well, thank you, Amy, for having me on your show. California is a very big state. We are 58 counties, 40 million people, the fifth largest economy in the world. And parts of our state are very different than others. So now we have about 17 counties that have moved into phase two that are able to open up uh, restaurants, um, malls for curbside pickup. And we're trying to move as many um, 
industries into the category of partial reopening as possible. Because as we know, the more people who can get back to work, the quicker we're going to be able to reopen our economy and save jobs. And we know we've heard from medical experts who point that testing is key to returning to a more normal way of life. So what's the status of testing in your state right now? So California and New York now are the two um, states that are doing the most testing. Our goal uh, was to hit 25,000 tests per day. We've gone past that. Our new goal is 60,000 tests per day. We're on track uh, to do it. And frankly, you know, as all the experts are saying, and we know very well, testing and tracking are going to be key to reopening so that if there is an outbreak, we can very quickly isolate it. Uh, and avoid having to go back into potentially another shutdown. Yeah, that, of course, is the fear. Big headline this week, the California State University system announcing distance learning will continue through the fall with nearly all in-person classes canceled. You serve on the board of trustees. What can you tell us about this decision? Well, it's a massive institution. The CSU is the largest institution for public higher education in the United States. 23 campuses. You have to plan these things in advance. It's very difficult to wait until July or August. And so we made the decision that we needed to, uh, frankly, just accept that we were not going to be able to bring uh, 500,000 students back on campus by the fall. We will be bringing some students back. So students who need to be in labs, uh, students in nursing who need to be uh, hands-on training. Uh, But the majority of courses will be taught online uh, with the Uh, full dedication that students will get as much um, benefit out of those courses uh, as if they were in the classroom. And again, hopefully it's just one semester. Hopefully is, I'm sure, what a lot of people are thinking right now. Lieutenant Governor, you're also a member of the governor's task force on business and job recovery. So what do you see as the keys to helping your economy bounce back? We have recruited some very high-level volunteers to support our effort for reopening. The CEO of Apple, Tim Cook, CEO of Disney, CEO of my personal favorite, Chipotle. Uh, They've come together. They're giving their own personal time to help us with things like advancing distance learning, but also figuring out how do we reopen restaurants in a way that they're going to be able to serve enough customers to to support their their work. And so, you know, Chipotle is a great example. It's not just about how they reopen their restaurants, but they're helping us figure out how all restaurants can reopen safely. And again, that's the key, getting people back to work, but ensuring that what we've done to flatten our curve in this state, saving undoubtedly tens of thousands of lives, that we don't undermine that effort um, in a way that we can reopen but do it safely for our people. We know Governor Gavin Newsom announced California's revised budget today. That's what he's doing. And I imagine that's a big reality check for the state. Well, there's no question about it. We went from a very significant uh, surplus to now um, what could be over a $50 billion deficit. But again, what our focus is on, because this isn't an ordinary recession, we intentionally shut down the fifth largest economy in the world in order to save lives. Now the focus is on getting it back up and running again in order to minimize the negative impact. But will there be an impact? For certain. California Lieutenant Governor Eleni Kunalakis, thank you.
Thank you, Amy. Coming up next right here, the Arkansas concert showdown hitting a sour note. The growing controversy over plans for a country music gathering. Welcome back. We have Dr. Jen Ashton in the house and Memorial Day weekend, Mm -hmm. next weekend, the unofficial start of summer. People are jumping in pools and lakes and oceans and they want to know, is it safe? What do you say about the spread of coronavirus and different types of water. So it's all about water today. And the CDC just this week, Amy, put out its recommendations for aquatic centers in the setting of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, So let's take it category by category. First of all, pool water, hot tub water, generally has chlorine, bromine. It has a certain pH, generally kills any type of organism that's in there, although obviously they haven't studied specifically coronavirus. Um, So that in general, in terms of the water, is thought to be okay. There is no evidence at this point that coronavirus can be spread by any type of water. Um, Now, when you look at freshwater, saltwater, no data on this at all. Mm. Um, So they still have to research that. The theory that this virus can live in that type of water still is not known. Um, What is known is that coronavirus has been detected in the stool of people who are sick. So there is the possibility that with sewage water and wastewater, it can be detected in that still being looked at. And lastly, when it comes to wastewater, and I thought this was fascinating, we heard Dr. Fauci mention the possibility of looking at wastewater in schools, dorms, as a means of surveillance to track if there's coronavirus in that area. So right now, um, a lot of unknowns, but in general, water seems to be okay at this All right. point. And especially perhaps the pool or the hot tub being the safest among them, if you can keep that six feet distance. For sure. That, that distancing is still important in the CDC recommending that all the areas around a pool, if you're going to use one, be clean, disinfected, sanitized, and that distance really, really important. All right. And this is a big question as people are reopening and entering businesses for the first time. Our next question, how will temperature testing help with opening up when you can have COVID-19 without showing symptoms? This is really interesting. We don't know how effective this is going to be at detection in someone who might be asymptomatic. So remember, in medicine, we use a cutoff of 100.4 degrees as defining a temperature. So let's say they're gonna do temperature checks before you go into your workplace or a restaurant or a mall. What are they gonna do at 100.3? That's very, very close to 100.4. It's not normal. Technically, we call that a low-grade temperature. So it, it opens up some problems in terms of logistics. We also don't know how many people with COVID-19, that may be their only symptom. We do know that a a lot of people with COVID-19 show no symptoms at all, including fever. So right. right now, we just don't know how effective this will be at catching people. Okay. Next question. Can you explain what is noteworthy about Sweden's efforts to combat COVID-19 in their country? A lot of eyeballs have been on Sweden, Amy, and this is incredibly controversial, even amongst epidemiologists, public health officials, and infectious disease specialists. They basically deviated from the rest of the Scandinavian countries, did not close their schools down, did not shut their restaurants down. They made a lot of social distancing suggestions, but they left it largely up to individuals. In the beginning of the pandemic, their mortality rates and death rates tracked that of Denmark, Norway, and Finland. Now they've pulled away to actually a higher death rate. They're about 25 per 100,000. So the verdict is still out, whether that will get them closer to herd immunity, whether that's the way other countries should go. Remember, they only have 10 million people. They're a small country. Um, But a lot of people looking at that for ideas as to how that might work in various cities 
parties, people are very divided about it. A yeah, lot of people for it. Out. Yeah, and a lot of people are against it. All right, Dr. Jen, we appreciate it. Yeah. And you can submit questions to Dr. Jen Ashton on her Instagram at Dr. J. Ashton. Well, now to Arkansas and the intensifying back and forth between the governor and a concert venue over a country music show planned for tomorrow night. Will the socially distanced show still go on? ABC's Kaylee Hartung has the latest. With a nationwide ban on large gatherings, virtual concerts are a popular alternative. But as states slowly start to reopen, many wonder what their favorite public venue's new protocol will be. In Fort Smith, Arkansas, Temple Live's Mike Brown wanted to take on that challenge by hosting the nation's first live show with country rock singer Travis McCready. When we got wind that the governor was going to uh, open up some things on May 4th, we anticipated and got a little forward thinking that, that it would open up. Brown says his attorneys submitted Temple Life's proposal to the Department of Health for review. We looked at the CDC guidelines. We consulted with some physicians that are friends to get some input from them as well. The concert would be a milestone, already being billed by the Arkansas Times as the first known live public concert to play in the United States as the nation slowly recovers from COVID-19 isolation. But just as plans were in place for the monumental event to kick off Friday, May 15th, 15th, Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson announced the state would not be reopening its public venues until three days after the event was scheduled to take place. We just wanted to give the owners of those establishments an understanding as to uh, where they can see a decision point for the future. In regards to the event, the governor went on to claim Temple Live had not submitted any such plan for approval to open at an earlier date. Clearly, it is uh, three days before we determined it was an appropriate time to open up. You still had to have a specific plan that would be approved by uh, the Department of Health. Uh, none of that was done in this case. The next day, he followed up saying, You know, we've looked at uh, their plan and their plan was insufficient. But safety protocols had been set. The event's website stating it would have temperature screenings, sanitation by fog, limited bathroom occupancy, even reducing their ticket sales, that number down from 1,100 to just 229 seats filled. This building is set up and ready for COVID protocol to have that number of people in here. Crushed by the announcement, Brown didn't understand what prompted the decision to keep the state shut down. Does the virus know that 72 hours is going to pass? You've got rights of assembly in other venues that are not restricted by capacity or when they started doing it. It's discrimination. It's not right. Governor Hutchinson announcing the Department of Health would even be filing legal action to stop the event. There will be a cease and desist order that will be issued by the Department of Health. For Brown, this announcement was shocking. This is a horrible time in our country. The world is watching. We have an opportunity to do a really good thing here for this state, the people of the state, and the people of this country. The artist, Travis McCready, visibly devastated when we broke the news. Did that just get told now? Oh, that's all good. Although the stay holds firm, Brown and McCready are still hoping they'll be able to put on a show. Both of them eager to bring back some normalcy to Fort Smith during this abnormal time. Do you think this is the future of how we'll experience live music? I certainly hope not. Our thanks to Kaylee Hartung for that. And Billboard reporting there is now a second show planned for nearby Missouri this weekend. We're going to stay on top of this story and bring you all the updates.
As states begin to loosen lockdown measures, employers are exploring getting back to business as usual, which leaves many workers wondering how to navigate it all. The best place to start is to know your rights. And here to help us do that is legal analyst Kate Shaw. Kate, thank you so much for being with us. So a lot of people might have a very uneasy feeling, which is understandable as their workplaces are reopening, not to mention there are parents out there who still have to deal with homeschooling and caring for their children. Do these employees have the right to work from home if they don't feel comfortable reporting to their jobs just yet? You know, unfortunately, there isn't a one-size-fits-all legal answer to that question. It's going to depend a lot on state and local law and on individual workplace policies. You know, I will say that in the various rounds of federal legislation that Congress and the White House have passed, the CARES Act and then the follow-ons, there hasn't been any sort of uh, attempt to address this issue of working from home. So so I can't say there is any freestanding right to do that under federal law. Uh, I will say that employees should be able to access things like accrued leave, vacation days, sick days, um, potentially could access temporary disability policies depending on state and local law and workplace policies. Um, If a family member is sick or the employee himself or herself is sick, FMLA leave should be available. That, of course, is unpaid leave. So unfortunately, it depends. uh, And I I think some sort of federal uh, solution would be required to really address this issue of people needing to work from home during this pandemic. Yeah, these are literally unprecedented times, so we'll have to catch up to them legally. Now, if workers do have to go back to their offices, are employers required to give them the resources to protect them from the spread of COVID-19? So once again, it's going to depend a bit on state and local law and, of course, on workplace policies. Uh, I will say that as a general matter, employers have a legal obligation to take reasonable care to protect their employees. And at this point, it seems pretty clear to everyone that basic steps like supplying masks and implementing social distancing in the workplace are the minimum required for reasonable care. So while the sort of obligation will depend a little bit on the location in which the workplace is, employers are opening themselves up to potential legal liability if they don't take steps like supplying masks and spacing employees out in workplaces. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Now, we're also hearing that when some workplaces do open up, they may make employees test first for COVID-19. Is that legal? Is that allowed? So this one is a little more straightforward. Uh, In a word, yes, under federal law. So federal law basically allows employers to require employees to undergo medical testing if they believe the employee may pose a direct threat to the health or safety of others. And actually, the EEOC, the federal agency that enforces a lot of workplace protections, has issued guidance saying that in light of this pandemic, in light of things like asymptomatic transmission and community spread, uh, it is reasonable for employers to require everyone to undergo testing before re-entering the workplace. So that could take the form of just temperature checks, but of course not everyone uh, has a temperature. uh, And so actual testing is under federal law actually permissible under current interpretations of uh, the federal laws. Now, I should say that state and local laws could differ, and it could be the case that individual workplaces have collective bargaining agreements where employees need to be consulted before a change like this is implemented. But under federal law, this is okay. All right. And then this begs the next question. So someone's test comes back positive. Is that person then um, going to have their results shared with other employees? What are the rules? What's the legality with that? 
Sure. So actually, employers are required to take steps to protect to protect the identity of individuals if, in fact, they do come back with a positive test. So so employers are not without the consent of an employee permitted to broadcast the information about a particular individual's testing status. Uh, now, I will say that employers do often seek the consent of employees. And if consent is given, then employers are free to share the information uh, without employee consent. Employers still have to take steps mm. to attempt while protecting anonymity to alert individuals who may have come into contact with a positive uh, individual um, of the need to take precautions. Um, but without consent, the law actually prohibits employers from sharing personal health information. That's interesting. The one with, the whole, with the whole contract tracing, contact tracing situation as a part of being able to reopen, yeah. that definitely puts a fly in the ointment. Well, and I, I would say a big issue here is consent. So if employees decide to consent to the sharing of their information and consent to, you know, to participating actively in contact tracing, that will very much facilitate, I think, our ability to 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 trace contacts and to control spread. Um, but a lot of it does turn on willing cooperation and consent. I mean, the one other thing I'll say is that employers may actually be required to report uh, results to health officials. Mm. Um, but that's, of course, a distinct question from um, telling others in the workplace about an individual's health information. Thank you so much for clearing up a lot of this. So many questions as we try to return back to work. Kate Shaw, thank you for your expertise and your time today. We appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Jazz musicians are among those left especially vulnerable due to the pandemic. With venues closed and events canceled, their livelihoods have literally vanished. But there is a new effort to get those musicians some much-needed help. And joining me to tell us all about it is Steve Jordan, Artistic Director of the Jazz Foundation of America. Steve, thank you so much for being with us today. And can you tell us a little bit about the Jazz Foundation and how it works? Hi, Amy. Pleasure to be with you. Um, The Jazz Foundation of America is a compassionate and loving organization designed to meet the needs of the men and women in the jazz community. We provide pro bono health care from the Inglewood Medical Center in New Jersey. We create dignified work for the players who need jobs around the country. We have pop-up gigs everywhere. We have a program called Jazz in the Schools, which we bring jazz musicians to local schools and turn the kids on to this wonderful music, part of their American heritage. And, um, you know, it's, it's just been wonderful being a part of this organization. Oh, yeah. The smiles and the joy that that music brings. And you organized this special concert event. You're kicking it off tonight. Tell us about it. Well, you know, we have one of the jewel events uh, for the foundation is an event called it's our gala called A Great Night in Harlem. And we do it at the Apollo Theater every year. We had to postpone this event this year for obvious reasons. When the pandemic really struck and, and the lockdown went into effect, every musician in the community was affected. Um, within this gig economy, these are the people who do the gigs and they live from gig to gig. So as soon as a club closed, right, that was it. And a lot of people, they live, they eat at the, at the clubs. You know, it's not just providing a job to play. It's, it's, it's everything, right? So that came to an abrupt halt. We had to do something quickly. So we created the COVID-19 Musicians Emergency Fund. And everything that's raised in this concert will go directly to that fund. 
And that fund is designed to, you know, just we're a stopgap, you know, so people will have no jobs right now. So we're trying to create and provide money to get to them directly, sort of like this stimulus package that went down. But these people don't qualify. They, they don't even know. The IRS doesn't even know how to get the money to these people. So we are providing that work. I love that. And everyone gets to enjoy music at the same time. So how about a taste of what we can see tonight? Let's take a listen to Cheryl Crow singing Willow Weep For Me. Come, my lover's dream. Lovely, lovely dream. Gone and left me to weep my tears in. Steve Jordan, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you for all you're doing for your community. It's a pleasure. God bless. And that's our program for today. I'm Amy Robach. Thanks for listening. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.